0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm really glad to have all of you here today and kicking off this week of innovations in Parkinson's disease, a week of insights with UC San Diego experts. I want to thank you for attending today and I really want to appreciate all of you have been partners to our department for so long and supporting supporting our center supporting our parkinson's disease center as well as our department i'm dr james brewer i'm a neurologist and i'm chair of the department of neurosciences at uc san diego we're extraordinarily proud of this department and its parkinson's program as really the number one nih funded neurosciences department in the nation Uh, and i wanted to tell you just briefly about some of the special sauce that makes this place so key in innovating in care of Parkinson's disease and other neurological disorders. This center is housed in a remarkable multifaceted campus. And that is UC San Diego, which has not only a medical center, but also a school of pharmacy, a school of public health, and a, a remarkable Mesa that includes top-notch engineering. So today's, uh, talk is going to be about how those centers come together to really innovate the care of Parkinson's disease. This week is going to be extraordinarily exciting for all of us because uh, we're going to highlight to you uh, what we've done in Parkinson's disease. Today is going to be about wearable technology transforming symptom management. Tomorrow will be care beyond the clinic, uh, community support programs. Uh, Wednesday will be unlocking LARC-2, a new drug target, which is going to be quite exciting and some real important work taking place here at UC San Diego about that uh, genetic uh, risk factor for Parkinson's disease. Thursday will be 4D biology and cell dynamics, paving the way for personalized medicine. And then Friday will be creating new neurons, the potential to reverse Parkinson's disease. So I think I'm gonna be here with you this whole week and I'm really excited to see what we're going to be uh, highlighting with you. And I'm just delighted to have you here. So today I wanted to welcome you uh, to talk about uh, Parkinson's disease and wearable technology. This is where the Center for Parkinson's disease uh, has partnered with the Center for uh, Engineering and Center for Wearable Sensors. as part of the Institute of Engineering in Medicine, and really has come to innovate the wearable technologies as an approach to taking care of patients with Parkinson's disease. So we have two fantastic leaders, many of which you are already aware of, uh, Dr. Irene Litvan, who is the center director of the Parkinson's and other departments. The Other Movement Disorders Center, which is really a major feather in the cap of UC San Diego as a recognized center of excellence in, in many national uh, uh, institutes that have recognized the work that Irene Litvan has done. Irene is a board certified neurologist providing gold standard care for neurology patients, especially patients with movement disorders. She's overseeing this program that is really brought national attention to our center. We are seen as a center of excellence, not only by the Parkinson's Foundation, the Louis Body Dementia Association, the CURE Progressive Super Nuclear Palsy, and the Huntington's Disease Society of America. This really shows that this center is at the highest achievement of any of the centers in the nation. So Dr. Litvan will be joined by Dr. Joe Wang, who's a distinguished professor of the Department of Nano Engineering. So he has pioneered the development of nanomotors and nanoactuators, bioelectronics and biosensors, wearable sensor systems, and flexible materials. So the two of them have really brought together their expertise to apply it towards Parkinson's disease. And I'm really excited to hear what they have to say. So I'm going to welcome Dr. Irene Litman here to kick off today's meeting. Thanks so much.
1: Hi, good morning. Uh, Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Brewer for your kind introduction. It is my pleasure today to present you a brief overview of our research, particularly on wearables. Although I'm going to be giving you the concepts and why we are using wearables, Professor Wang is going to give you all the details so you'll understand much more than what I'm going to be saying, hopefully. So Over the past years, I've been studying early and accurate uh, ways of diagnosing all the Parkinsonian disorders. In fact, that is what has led me to get an NIH merit award, as well as uh, an Academy of Neurology uh, Research Award in Movement Disorders. I am extremely interested in this because uh, without having a good Diagnosis, we cannot really understand the causes of the diseases or treat them appropriately. So my research has been focused on this and um, obviously it is the major focus understanding as well how we can measure all these problems that people have. Before going into the details of the presentation, I want to just remind you that Parkinson's disease has four stages, one that is the preclinical in which only people that do have genetic factors and have an abnormal imaging can be diagnosed, and we're searching for markers for the diagnosis at an earlier stage. Then there is a prodromal stage in which the symptoms that occur are only non-motor. So there could be decreased smell, enacting dreams, constipation, depression. And then comes the early Parkinson's disease stage, in which slowness, stiffness, and resting tremor may occur. And then as the disease progresses, there is an advanced stage in which there could be major fluctuations, changes between the on and off and the dyskinesias, as well as presence of cognitive problems, including dementia, as well as orthostatic hypotension as part of the autonomic symptoms. So we do research in all these stages, uh, diagnosing, understanding causes, treating the symptoms, avoiding the symptoms to develop, as well as searching for ways to treat the complications. So all the neurodegenerative diseases are proteinopathies. That means that there is a protein that deposits into the brain, and that is what uh, leads to an abnormality in the configuration of these proteins that leads to the death of the cells. And that is what a neurodegenerative disease pretty much is. So this allows us to search for those abnormal proteins, and search for biomarkers as well as novel ways or strategies to treat these disorders. In the case of Parkinson's disease, this is alpha-synuclein. So we do have several studies that that do look at the genes as well as the causes of the disease and the search for biomarkers in not only Parkinson's disease, but also diseases that are uh, atypical, non-Parkinson's disease, such as progressive supranuclear palsy, corticobasal degeneration, and dementia with Lewy bodies. So we want to understand the causes, not only by studying genes, but also trying to look at what are the environmental uh, exposures so we can prevent and find a proper symptoms. So here, what we want to do is to uh, discuss briefly the therapeutic studies that we have. Those are in clinical development, and those are phase one, phase two, as well as phase three. Phase one means that we're searching for safety and also the right dose. Phase two is when we look at that particular dose compared to placebo. So we can see if the medication is effective and also safe. And a phase three is when the same is done in a bigger population, and that is what allows FDA to approve drugs. So the studies that we do have currently are the studies for Parkinson's disease using small molecules that um, make the uh, proteins not to be uh, changing configuration, therefore avoiding the aggregation. And we have another one that is avoiding the spread by using um, antibodies against alpha-synuclein. We also have studies in progressive supranuclear palsy in multiple system atrophy using antisense oligonucleotides as well as nerve growth factors. So in addition to those studies that try to slow disease progression, we also have studies that do help uh, the symptoms. And particularly, we have an interesting study using subcutaneous levodopa with a pump. um, And we compare that with oral levodopa and try to see if motor fluctuations are better Prepare better uh, treated than uh, otherwise. Um, in addition to that, we have a study for people that have uh, low blood pressure, and that is with um, a medication that's called ampreloxetine. So now let me talk about wearables. That is what the whole symposium is about. And as you can see this, the United States is uh, really uh, moving forward and particularly um, our university in view of our phenomenal bioengineer group, including uh, principally by Professor Wang. So you can see how even that uh, has changed regarding the market and how much there is uh, an influence of medical devices and how much this market is going to grow as the year uh, that do pass. So we... Use wearables not only for what was there, that is, uh, the management and the therapeutics, um, of a disease, particularly chronic diseases, but also we are, uh, using it for telemedicine, remote medicine, uh, use in, um, in hospitals to improve the management of, uh, patients. The whole idea of using this kind of uh, wearables is, in fact, to try to do a personalized approach to the treatment of patients. And the idea here is to know how each person actually uh, behaves in a way so we can treat specific symptoms and address all our management of the care, as well as obviously for therapeutic management and therapeutic trials. So we do have a levodopa meter that I'll be discussing, um, as well as a phone meter, a continuous blood pressure monitor, as well as uh, ways of uh, testing the an early diagnosis by using alpha-synuclein in spinal fluid. I'll be discussing the first three if I have enough time to do so. Um, the idea of having pilot studies is To be able to do novel and studies that cannot be otherwise done with, uh, without any pilot data, without any data that is presented to show the feasibility and the fact that this can be actually uh, something that is uh, worthwhile pursuing. So the studies with levodopa meter has allowed us to get funding from NIH as well as those uh, with early um, diagnosis, and in the others, we are uh, actually trying to work on the uh, development of those grants. So let me explain why we are interested in the progression um, and, and measurement of the levodopa. Let me explain first that here you have what we call uh, the concentrations of the levodopa that unfortunately don't last uh, too long in blood, only an hour and a half. And you can see here what is the peak uh, dose of the levodopa. And uh, we can see as well here um, what is the efficacy of the levodopa. That is the amount of uh, medication that is needed in order to uh, get to an on or having benefit from the drug. That is what we call the efficacy threshold or the benefit uh, for the medication. And here we can see that in early stages, we don't get to the threshold for the dyskinesias that are truly uh, what are uh, leading the, are the major, uh, what we would consider toxic in some ways, although it's part of the evolution of the disease, um, but use of the levodopa. Therefore, what we have here is what we call the therapeutic window. And so initially we need very little medication in order to get to the on, and we don't even get to the dyskinesias. But as the disease progresses, we can see that that therapeutic window narrows. And so it is kind of easy to go from the off to the on. So um, we want to get uh, to know the amount of levodopa because, That is in blood because we want to get the minimal amount of levodopa and get the best uh, possible treatment at any stage of the illness. So in addition to the motor fluctuations, there are also non-motor fluctuations, anxiety, drenching sweat, slowness of thinking, fatigue, irritability. and some of you may know that what we do is to ask people to uh, note when they are dyskinesias and uh, when there are fluctuations, whether there is an off period where there are dyskinesias, if mild, severe. But this is tedious, and some people have difficulties. Therefore, there has been um, development of what we call the PKG, um, a way a watch that measures the amount of movement and compares it to the general population and we can see whether there is dyskinesias whether there are bradykinesia or the patient is doing well but that doesn't help us to understand what is a minimal amount of medication. Therefore, this is the role of the levodopa meter that is a, a needle that is a needle that pretty much gets to the interstitial uh, fluid and allows the measure of the amount of levodopa with uh, assembly that uh, Professor Wan will explain. Another project is to look at the falls. So what is it that uh, leads us to uh, have a fall is something that most people when they get to the emergency room do not know. And falls are very common in the elderly, but they are even more more common in the people that have Parkinson's disease or Parkinsonian disorders. So we are developing a device that is a phone that has... Uh, several ways of measuring the gait, balance, freezing, orthostatic hypotension, as well as the normal causes that could lead to falls that are uh, heart problems or seizures or other problems that may occur. We also collect information from uh, each person. So here it is the, the program. The persons can put their own symptoms when they took medications, etc. And there are sensors that go directly by Bluetooth to the phone. And uh, in the back of the phone, there is a way of measuring and analyzing all that that gives us a, a, a graph that measures blood pressure, uh, uh, heart rate and freezing, etc. Another project is the measure of blood pressure, and um, Professor Longarner and Shen Shu are looking at a patch that actually uh, looks at um, a very novel way of looking at continuously at the blood pressure without using a cuff and that is using uh, ultrasound technology that allows us to detect the walls of the blood. Uh, We have studies that are open to enrollment in those particular uh, causes. So wearables are extremely important because they allow us to get objective measures of symptoms, progression, allows clinical management, therapeutic management, as well as help us as having an outcome measure in therapeutic trials. I cannot say, or I can say that without our group that is multidisciplinary, we wouldn't be able to provide the -the state-of-the-art care that we provide and doing all the research and outreach that our group does. I also want to thank Professor Wan, as well as uh, Professor Young, that are the ones that have uh, the wearables that we are, uh, that I just described. I want to thank you all for uh, listening to me, and I would like to let uh, Professor Wang to present his slides. Uh, Professor Wan has been collaborating with me for the past six years and we have been trying to work on all these different uh, uh, projects and we have like four projects or five now because he's extremely active and is a clear scholar and very enthusiastic as you'll see so go ahead
2: thank you irene as i say i'm coming from the engineering school and we have a fantastic uh, Bioengineering Institute of Engineering and Medicine, and I'm the director of the UCFD Center on Wearable Sensor. This is an agile sensor in the School of Engineering, which is responsive to societal and uh, industry need. And the goal is to develop a next generation of wearable sensor to address really big uh, challenges and uh, big uh, questions, bringing together Broad expertise from different departments, engineering as well as medical, collaborators like Irene, and also we hope to be a resource, outreach resource as well as uh, for research, development, and economic outreach for the state and also for the nation. So we, uh, Irene mentioned some of my colleagues, this is Professor Sheng, that she worked on the blood pressure TP thing on the fall. So we have 20 faculty, this is myself smiling with my co-director, we have medical people, all aspects of wearable from device to data to material and a really complementary background to allow us to tackle these challenges. Now, you know, the field is already almost two decades from the digital revolution with all the smartphone. We see a lot of movement to watches, wrist device. Now, most of these devices, uh, which are really changing and improving the quality of life, uh, uh, they are focusing on mobility and uh, vital signs. So what we have currently on the iPhone, uh, where, or the watch, Apple watch, you can measure your ECG or steps. But what we are trying to give information about chemical biomarkers that Irene mentioned, like levodopa or other biomarker, and to do so by bridging the gap between this biochemical analysis and the digital world so we can have it on a smartphone, all this data, and measure it continuously at 24 seven, any time, any location. So we are in the center, we're developing platform, not only for medical, this is like a, what we dream for Levodopa, but this is a glucose meter from Dexcom here in San Diego for monitor fluctuation in glucose, a lot of fitness and performance for an athlete and for soldier, forensic application and entertainment, again, 24 seven. And the advantage of this is that you can give continuously chemical information, again, anytime in any location and do it without piercing your skin to get blood sample. These are non-invasive. You put it on the skin and you measure your sweat or tears. And hopefully this is, will change the way where they monitor the Parkinson patient and also wellness in general, and eventually can be done remotely in telemedicine at lower cost which is now accelerated by the COVID-19 pandemic, moving to remote and non-contact medicine. So what we are doing in our lab, my own lab, I focus on chemical biomarker and doing it not only in blood, which is more invasive. We want to have a non-invasive of measuring the sweat or under the skin, the ISF, or even measuring saliva, or measuring tears, so we have different devices that can analyze all of this. Uh, this with the micro needle, we'll talk later on. But different tattoo, different mask guard, even on glasses. And by doing so, we can measure. If you visit my lab, Irene saw it before, you'll see this mannequin with many, many uh, devices that uh, do not compromise the analytical performance or the comfort in daily activity. You have device on glove for forensic, device in socks. So we have a smiley smiley tattoo for pH of the sweat or a ring for measuring mobility or nerve agent again, a mouse guard or a device for ECG and lactate for uh, sepsis. And we work also on the blood pressure uh, with the shanks. So uh, translating this for uh, Parkinson, uh, we started with Irene about five years ago, developing disposable strip. And we do it a lot what we learn from diabetic where you have strips for glucose. The same we develop with ARIN, a strip that do frequent measurement of levodopa at a short time interval. Uh, you can take uh, 5 microliter of blood and every enzyme that recognized the dopa. This was earlier published in 2014. More recently, we started the meter, which now we have a joint NIH, where we are now dreaming to have a part of a closed-loop system eventually, like in diabetics. So a lot of this drive by the lesson that uh, we learned from diabetic, and I've been doing it for a three decade working on glucose from the strip in the late eighties. This is the common, what you see in in CVS or Walgreens that in five seconds measuring your blood glucose. Two more recently, this is the DEXCAM-6 here in San Diego that monitor the ISF glucose continuously. And this is the ultimate goal. This is a CGM for continuous glucose monitor. And we are dreaming with the ring to have a CDM for continuous dopa monitoring. So this is what uh, inspires us. Can we translate this? Uh, the lesson for glucose to Parkinson? One challenge that glucose concentration are quite high. Glucose in blood is what we call five millimolar and levodopa in blood is a thousand ton lower. So this is part of the challenge where we need uh, to push. But the glucose is very advanced in terms of the technology, but in the levodopa we have to tackle mainly the lower concentration. So again, the Dopameter, uh, to do it uh, in blood uh, with the strip is easier, relatively easier compared to the continuous. So this is what we published with Irene uh, seven years ago. These are disposable, uh, mass-producible screen-printed strip, like one of them. And instead of Urquhose, we have enzyme tyrosinase that modifying this carbon electrode. And then when you get the blood, it recognizes the DOPA. And in 10 seconds, you can get a readout of the DOPA uh, level in blood. So this is early work. But as I mentioned, our goal is, again, like in glucose where we have artificial pancreas, we want to develop a closed loop system where you measure continuously. This is a work from metronics that they have a closed loop artificial pancreas. So where the minimally invasive sensor will uh, be processing the data and act to it autonomously, eventually the DOPA pump that Irene has. So here we have insulin pump, which is here also for metronics. So this is a closed loop autonomous uh, feeding. We call it sense and act. So we sense on the sensor and act with the pump. And this will be done eventually with algorithm, with AI, machine learning, all uh, autonomously. So this is the first example of such closed loop in personalized medicine. And we want to adapt this concept for the Parkinson patient. So again, we will rely on microneedle. That are, and these are tiny device, one millimeter Deep, so eyes. Uh, so they are really called minimally invasive. It's even smaller than the needle in the glucose. The needle in the glucose are eight millimeters. Our needle, you hardly feel it. And again, the goal is to have a closed loop that you sense the dopa and deliver, uh, as Irene showed, the narrow therapeutic range. So there are already several uh, commercial wearable sensors for monitoring motor, uh, motility, accelerated gyro. These are commercial, but these are physical sensors. And uh, we would like to merge our chemical sensing with this physical sensor to get complete chemical information and also information about uh, motor action of the Parkinson patient, both in preclinical and more advanced stage of the disease. So this is our vision to have a complete uh, a combination of the my new uh, Dopameter, the chemical sensor with the motion sensor, all uh, with our uh, processor that will drive the drug delivery. So there are different platforms that we can use to do the DOPA sensing. You can implant a big catheter in the blood. This is more challenging because this is in the blood. We are also working in Irene to monitor uh, DOPA in a sweat like we do for glucose. So... We would like to have alternative, completely non-invasive. With the micro needle, which we are doing now, we're shown here, these are minimally invasive. Really, you don't feel it, and it's really negligibly invasive because it's less than one millimeter. But we're also dreaming to have a completely non-invasive using a wristband or a watch, a tattoo type, that we can measure sweat, a dopa. But we will focus on the meter, which is we pioneered with Irene two years ago. We have the first uh, paper where we show in vitro characterization. And the beauty that we on this needle, which is eight by eight millimeter, less than one centimeter square, we put multiple sensor, which give different information for levodopa. One is the enzymatic and one non-enzymatic. So we can build on this micro needle. You can see here three micro needle. This is again one millimeter go under the skin. And uh, we in addition to DOPA, which can be measured by different technique, we can also monitor other uh, related parameters like uh, glucose, which some of the Parkinson patients are also uh, suffer from diabetic. So we can have a more comprehensive information, what we call multiplex detection, monitor several uh, Parkinson biomarkers in really pain-free approach. So the system that we use, we already during this NIH project, we developed a platform. It's a fully integrated platform, not only the micro needle, but also the supporting electronic and the battery. All of these are enclosed in this enclosure. This is my center center, of wearable sensor. So we have the micro needle facing the skin connecting with the electronic control, which apply voltage, measure the current signal, powered by the battery, and you can also do wireless transmission and wireless charging of this. So this is look like this when it's on the body. This is from the top, as you can see, and this is the part at the bottom. And this uh, this part is disposable, reusable after one or three days. But the other part is reusable. The electronic with wireless communication, wireless charging, and the battery, all of these are reusable. So only the sensor, which may cost one or $2. You have multiple needles for redundancy. We can measure levodopa on eight different needles to make sure that it's redundant, accurate. We take the average. And again, it's all wireless transmitted to the smartphone. So these are examples of data where we published with Irene uh, two years ago, where in the same sensor, we can measure level DOPA using the enzyme, which look like this. And this is non-enzymatic by direct scanning. So you have uh, what we call a multi-modality detection, kind of complete lab on the skin or under the skin, which uh, by having two modality, we can have more uh, reliable, more. precise measurement for more precise uh, dose regulation later on so at the moment we are uh, adapting we develop the system integration and uh, uh, in addition to the under the skin we are working i told you on level dopa sweat dopameter where we take the sweat from the fingertip and measure it at 10 minutes interval without taking any blood. So this approach is the one that will be the dopameter with the NIH for continuous measurement at a a one minute interval. So there is fast fluctuation. And in this case, we can capture dynamic changes and respond accordingly using this uh, meter needle. And this is again, this is a relatively fast uh, 10 minutes and uh, the beauty is all in sweat. We don't need to go under the skin. And our preliminary results are very encouraging. This is where we take the pill, and you see every 10 minutes, you see the kinetic profile, the current, this is the uh, data is the raw data. After twenty minutes increasing thirty, and then it's decreasing again, so this is another exciting project the non invasive so overall uh, this uh, we have a large group of uh, very dedicated postdoc and students and visitor from a wide range of uh, uh, expertise for material, the chemical. In this specific project, we work with Azure and Farshad to work on the micro needle, but they're all supported. We have uh, Rodolfo is also working with Irene for drug delivery. So it's very exciting. This before the pandemic, uh, we meeting just uh, last year. And again, uh, support of the Center Wearable, Center Engineering and Medicine, and join Grant, NIH Grant with Irene, fantastic collaboration with Irene and Katie. So we opt together to shape the future of Parkinson care and Parkinson management. Thank you very much.
0: So exciting, Irene and Joe. This is really what makes it so uh, inspiring to be at UC San Diego, where there's cross fertilization across uh, departments like neurosciences and engineering, the center for wearable technologies and Nanoengineering, And I, I always marvel at how much in medicine can be attacked from different perspectives. And I think, you know, physicians spend so much of their time studying the biology and they may have ideas of, wow, wouldn't it be nice if we could do this or that, but we don't yet have the skills or the time to understand things like nanoengineering. And so having collaborations with folks like Joe Wang uh, in the Department of Nanoengineering, one of the first in the nation actually established through Joe's work, uh, really makes UC San Diego a truly special place. So Thank you so much, Joe and Irene. And right now we're going to be able to open it up to Q&A, which is very exciting. So you and the audience will have direct access to these world leaders in Parkinson's and nanoengineering. The first I'd like to uh, put forward um, to Dr. Wang uh, from an anonymous attendee, uh, would the sensors have to be attached to
2: you at all times?
0: How how would you um, manage that?
2: No, yeah. If you want continuous readout, you need to contact under the skin to expose. So, yeah, it's small, but it's really negligibly invasive. It's less than one millimeter long. So when you remove it, there is no sign, nothing, no irritation, no skin effects. So it's really negligibly. And the company are already exploring it for diabetic. Yeah. With approval. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's what I was wondering because you know being here in San Diego where Dexcom is and uh, really understanding what are the challenges, uh, certainly you noted the challenge of, you know, DOPA levels being a thousand times lower. Uh, do you see that as a major hurdle to getting toward uh, FDA clearance and the ability to widely apply this? That's yeah,
2: it's a good point because other challenges like biofouling or passivation have been addressed in the glucose of so people and I know how to address is uh, protecting the sensor from passivation in the under the skin but the concentration is what we are trying we have in vitro we demonstrate we can go to lower below the yeah below micromolar we can uh, go to this level but still on the body as we just recently integrated the system we started this and we're testing it with the and we, we see preliminary results. Surprisingly, the sweat is even more responsive. So we have very surprising result using sweat, but the sweat is not continuous It every five, 10 minute interval, which is also exciting, replacing the blood with sweat.
0: That's amazing. Is, That's incredible. Uh,
2: mm-hmm.
0: For Irene, uh, when you look at this technology and the amazing uh, capacity of this work, uh, how would we apply this to other uh, what's called uh, at least one of the anonymous attendees is saying, how would it be applied to all PD types? And do you see uh, a way that this could be applied beyond just standard Parkinson's uh, disease? Or do you feel like there may be uh, a, a means to apply such technologies to things like, you know, maybe multisystem atrophy or other sub uh, types of movement disorders?
1: Yes, this is a technology that can be used for everybody, um, particularly those that have to do with, for example, measuring uh, whether someone falls. That is a perfect example of how this can be used. For example, patients that have multiple system atrophy have very low blood pressures, and they may have a syncopal event when they stand up. So this uh, fall meter, for example, could be used for that, to let the person know, hey, your blood pressure is too low, don't get up uh, at this point. So that's kind of where we're trying to go with this discovery. So go to a second stage that is using the information not only to learn that something is happening, but also to search for treatments. Regarding the levodopa meter, because levotopa in general doesn't work in some of the uh, typical Parkinsonian disorders, for those that would not be useful. But for multiple system atrophy or dementia with Lewy bodies, certainly that um, is a technology that can certainly be used because we want to use the minimal amount to produce the least amount of side effects. Um, and in... In these two disorders, for example, there is low blood pressure, So, and the livojopa by itself lowers the blood pressure. So we want to use the minimal amount of livojopa to be able to treat but not produce side effects.
0: Great. Thank you so much. Uh, here's a question regarding what do we think these sensors will end up costing? I know that's difficult to say at this time, but... Uh, would you feel like these will be affordable technologies, Dr. Wang?
2: Yeah, electrochemistry by, by itself is a low-cost technique. So if you look at the glucose strip, uh, people can buy a monthly supply for $50, and the meter, they get it for free. You get so the disposal, like razor and blade, that the disposable on the strip. But they're still in the $10 billion industry. The uh, diabetic market is over $10 billion. a we have 28, 30 million compared to Parkinson. But uh, uh, even the micro-needle will be probably eventually uh, $20. But I told you also we have disposable. The disposable part will be only $1 or $2. The reusable one you can buy for $20 and keep reusing the electronic portion, yeah.
0: Very exciting. And I I presume that non-tech savvy people will be able to use these sensors. I don't believe you'll need necessarily a lot of technology oh, yeah, so. we
2: make it as user friendly even grandma can do it by itself <laughs> yeah. that's what they're doing diabetics they do diabetic in 10 seconds you get the blood glucose amazing these grandmas great uh
0: question about uh, the wearable sensors how how might you be able to uh, disperse the medication and this may be for irene uh, about so the level of therapeutic dopamine will remain constant it seems like that's what of the sort of holy grail of being able to, when the narrow therapeutic window starts to happen later in the disease and it's very difficult to hit the sweet spot of the, of the dosing and uh, how one might be able to use wearable sensors to address that question.
1: Well, that is exactly where we want to go. And I think that will be a paradigm shift as it was the use of the glucose meters. Uh, The idea is to try to see, okay, for this person, this is the perfect level. And we get to this perfect level by this amount of medication. And it can be oral, it can be uh, any other way that the medication is is given. So yes, uh, this would be an important way to understand that. And I think it is also important because some people do have uh problems that are the non-motor ones and those are so much more difficult to nowadays understand what is the proper level and so this would allow us to know okay the proper level for anxiety is this one versus the motor one is this one so this would be the proper level that we need to use and this will be the certain amount of medication that needs to be given all that needs to be studied in detail. And that will be, you know, taking time until we know what is the proper level for each person. But I think that should not be very difficult at all. As we know uh, what happens with glucose, right? We know the levels and then we give the certain amount of insulin, for example, or or oral medication for that matter.
0: Great. Uh, A brief question for Dr. Wang. Uh, How what is keeping the levodopa sensor attached to the skin besides the needles are you using some sort of special uh, adhesive to, to
2: yeah the commercial addition from 3m they just keeping very user friendly user independent so it's very easy to remove at the end of the day so it's very everything is user friendly when you remove it you don't see any 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 memory no irritation etc.
0: Great. So uh, one attendee notes, uh, as I understand correctly, most, if I understand correctly, most of these are being developed right now. What do you need to reach completion? How soon do you project some of them to be available and used as designed?
2: So again, a lot of this is uh, much easier if you go to the sport, the fitness, performance market, then you don't need the FDA approval, especially when you're involved drug uh, that is response to the meter. So anything involved, uh, both, there are two aspects. One is going, still going under the skin. So we got IRB, we don't have any issue with microneedle, but anything that involved later on, make a decision based on the sensor to dose the levodopa, FDA will really need to, this will be the bottleneck eventually, yeah. Right.
0: And uh, what, what other, can you expand upon? A couple of a combination question here. One is, are there any other devices like this in development? And then the other is which sensor do you feel is most accurate and are the sensors presently being used in clinical medicine so basically talking about broader uh, applications and and other sensors that might be out there that uh, that may have some uh, alternative benefits and and drawbacks.
2: So in general, as I say, always, uh, glucose is leading the market, but there are a lot of activity for lactate, for sepsis, uh, cortisol for stress and performance. The military is interested in cortisol. And again, we do a lot of lactate, alcohol sensing. We work with Sandra. Bra- Sandra Brown is mm. expert on alcohol. So all type drug of abuse, opioids monitoring for kids, all type of interesting. And then also security. We were with the army for detecting nerve agent, all type of uh, warning the soldier, protecting the soldier for explosive or nerve agent attack, et cetera. So amazing. One example is the last one is with the Navy here in San Diego, we do an underwater explosive. Mm. We put on a wetsuit of a diver or wetsuit of a surfer to put this sensor on textile, or you can dive and look at explosive residue the Navy want to protect the Navy boats. So we work in Point Loma with the Navy people to do this underwater uh, sensing of explosive residue. Listen.
0: Mm-hmm. in uh, I guess to f- further explain uh, on the, uh, the specifics of uh, detecting DOPA, uh, it sounded like you felt very optimistic on the sweat approach. Uh, the question of, where do you think, which is most likely to win the race here? The sweat approach, the blood approach, uh, other approaches?
2: Okay. And even in the case of glucose, uh, dreaming to replace the needle, the CGM, go completely non-invasive. Remember, Google have a smart glasses. So Google tried to have glass for tears glucose. So we are dreaming, keep dreaming, uh, you know, tears, saliva, sweat, ISF. But again, the ISF under the skin is closer to the blood, is well established, so that's why it may be winning the race, but the sweat has become very interesting and also for sweat glucose, et cetera. Excellent.
1: add also that none of this uh, technology is being developed anywhere else. Uh, we have asked uh, many our uh, excellent scholars throughout the world, And they all supported the idea, but nobody has been developed any of these devices. So this is really very, very novel.
0: Wonderful, Irene. I love that uh, segue into talking about our uh, special location here. I I really think even centers, very well-known centers uh, that, that have innovated a lot in the care of patients they don't have the special sauce that UCSD has, where this incredible center is in a place where you can have an interaction with, you know, walk across the bridge here and interact. And now with Zoom, I guess it works quite well. But uh, uh, but it's just remarkable this place. It's been described as a neuro as a playground for neurosciences. I think you know because we really have. Uh, just such a robust environment, intellectual environment, and no real silos to really halt you know, interactions and saying, oh, that's my project. I don't want you getting involved in it. Right. The special entrepreneurial spirit of UC San Diego having been here actually really quite young as a university in terms of where it is. I mean, being number one in the nation in NIH funding and neurosciences and yet only being you know, 60 years old or so, I think really describes our uh, special environment where, you know, maybe some of the older state institutions have built up too many silos to be able to have that kind of cross-fertilization. One last question for you, Irene, when you look at this really promising uh, new collaboration and thinking of the treatment uh, using these tools, could you could you, uh, one question here is, would patients start to use them for diagnosis or later in the disease development? I'm just, I don't want to lead you, but I think it is quite exciting maybe on all ends of the, uh, of the disease where one might be able to be very creative in, in using this in the diagnostic process. But can you expand on that?
1: Yes. The idea here about diagnosis is once we develop uh, ways in which we can measure a specific protein in the blood, and we can identify it as uh, a way to diagnose a disease. For example, abnormal uh, alpha sinuclein in blood. Then we can use these sensors to measure that, and so that would help with diagnosis. So as soon as uh, you know symptoms or family members or whatever uh, would occur, or even exposure to pesticides, for example, uh, one could diagnose early on this disease so that is extremely extremely exciting um of course later on is very clear because we can use it not only for diagnosis but also for the management in uh, many uh, many ways as we describe right i mean the the way of measuring how we walk the measure uh how um we have symptoms of anxiety or whatever else that could occur can be can be measured, as well as, of course the levodopa.
0: great, well, and I think and you know so one thing I didn't mention to the attendees is that I direct the uh, the charlie marcos alzheimer's disease Research Center, where we have great collaborations, and Irene is part of this program she's uh, really highlighted the benefits of being able to access fluids for biomarker analysis. Uh, We now have plasma biomarkers for the main proteins of Alzheimer's disease that are looking quite promising. And I think this work is going to influence the kind of biomarker measurements in Parkinson's disease as well. Uh, I think we'll call this the final question from Alan Kleinman. Can the, de- the delivery of dopa be adjusted to a temporary need to control dyskinesia, for example, prior to driving a car? I think that's a really exciting idea to think of. Oh, I need to dial it up just a little bit. I I see the uh, another thing that in our neurology department we we cover such a breadth of of diseases in neurology, you see this in things like myasthenia gravis, where a person gets weak at a certain time and might need to say, well, I want to try to chew a steak, so I'm going to take a little extra of that medication so that I get a little more strength, but I don't need that strength at all times. Could you do such a thing in Parkinson's disease?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And so we have people that do take extra dose uh, prior to playing golf, for example, and this would be the same. Wonderful.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you all for a very enlightening conversation. I think this is a great kickoff to the week. Uh, and uh, just, I'm so excited to be with you all week and hope you all will come back tomorrow for, uh, at noon for Care Beyond the Clinic, a community support program. I'll be here to introduce it. And we look forward to hearing your questions. And thank you once again for your time with us.